Today we are going to look at a glorious chapter, Luke chapter 15. This chapter is near and dear to my heart because the night I heard this chapter, I gave my life completely to Jesus Christ. And we find in this chapter a searching and a call for the lost to be found. And those who are spiritually dead become alive in Christ. In this chapter, we see how waves of influence begin to rush outward from the divine center to touch the outer fringes of humanity. And these waves send pulsations of new excitement, of new hope through the classes of society that have been excluded and banned, even banned by the religious leaders. And Jesus is at the center of these new waves and pulsations. It's not surprising that these outcasts of society begin to draw near to Jesus for the hostility of the religious leaders would naturally make Jesus so so attractive to him to them because his words of hope fell upon their condition like a breaking of a new dawn and Jesus did not forbid them to approach him Instead of looking upon them as intruders or foul or lesser, the attraction was mutual. Jesus was just excited about receiving them as they were drawing near to him. Instead of receiving them with a cold, fake courtesy, he welcomed them, received them gladly. He even mingled with them at the table. He ate with them. And to the religious pastors of that day, as they were called Pharisees and keepers of the law, in their minds this was unpardonable, half criminal, uncivilized, and unbecoming of a rabbi. Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. From this statement made by the religious leaders at that time comes a tricolored brilliance. Yet a simple, profound story. As Jesus observes their attitude, he tells them three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the jewel in the crown, the lost son. With minor differences, the parables are basically one message. They emphasize and repeat the truth of how heaven seeks after all, especially those who feel like they are not worthy or lost on the human journey. And now how heaven rejoices when they are found and they become alive. And Jesus uses wonderful climax and mathematical progression in Luke 15, as the lost fraction becomes this progression of the one one hundredth to the one tenth to the one half. He also ups the ante in value. A lost sheep that can be easily replaced. One dare not leave the 99 to seek after the one. But then Jesus raises the bar higher. One out of ten coins. Precious family heirloom. And finally, One out of two children lost, a priceless life, an irreplaceable son. Please read with me as we examine some of the greatest stories ever told in the face of scorn and exclusion. Jesus begins with the question in these parables, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? This question seems rather odd because the answer logically to the business mind would, would be, I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave the 99 to go after the one and try to find that one sheep. Are you kidding me? And they're probably right. But what you see Jesus is doing, he's getting them to think like him. He's getting them to feel feelings like him about God, God's feelings. He's trying to get them to see the horizon from his view. The scope of the horizon is that one out of a hundred is so precious. And behind this question is, do you dismiss this sheep from your thoughts? Do you leave to its certain fate slaughter that awaits it from the wolves and the jackals? Would you simply write it off and consider it as lost? This good shepherd says, no, sir. This sheep is valuable. You would go directly and search for it. You would turn your back on the 99 and you would go. You would call into the night the name of that sheep. You would bloody your knuckles climbing and scouring the mountainside and the rocks as you awaken the hills with a cry repeatedly of the identity of that lost lamb. For you know the lamb. You know the name of that lamb. Billy, Billy, where are you? He belongs to you and you want him back. And at last, when you find that little lamb trembling, would you strike it or punish it? No. That shepherd wouldn't even force that little lamb to retrace the steps that got it lost. No, he compassionately picks up that sheep in its weakness and fears and puts it on his shoulders and then rejoices all the way home singing a song of joy. He also forgets about his own exhaustion. And with newfound joy, he goes around to the neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. And in these words, Jesus introduces to those listening the profound teaching that he, the good shepherd, came to seek and save that which is lost. And heaven rejoices when the lost is found, when those who are drawn in. I tell you the same way. He said there will be more rejoicing in heaven when over one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God is doing the same even with those who have carelessly wandered. There were probably women present when Jesus tells this next illustration of God's search for the lost. And Jesus uses a very familiar image of that time. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. With these three verses, one has to examine culture. These coins were valuable coins. They were worn on a 10-piece garland by a married woman in the East. It's not just some old coin. We have history here, folks. Heirlooms passed down from generation like the wedding ring of the Western life. These coins were given by the bridegroom to the bride at the wedding day. And possibly this is this woman's maybe only symbol of maybe her deceased husband. 
So can you imagine how diligently she searches for that lost coin? She would be identified as careless. Therefore, she throws all things aside. And trembling, she lights the lamp, and she overturns the room with a broom, and she goes without food and water until she finds it. And what joy comes to her when she sees it down in the dust, shining there. She runs to it, she picks it up, she kisses it. And with all sorrow removed, she runs to her doorway and screams out to her neighbors, calling them. Not only has Jesus introduced us to this mathematical progression, but there's a fundamental increase in value as the fraction becomes increasingly extra precious. One one hundred sheep, one one hundred coin, and then one half, two, one out of two sons. There's several things that you need to understand here, my friends. Sheep get lost, don't they? Animals do that. The coin... It's mistakenly misplaced. It happens. But with the sheep and the coin, there's diligent searching. But Jesus elevates the complexity with the insertion of some human characters who make certain strategic life choices. And it's life-altering, definitely, for all of them. Luke 15, 11 through 13. Jesus continued, there was a certain man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got all together he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. What Jesus is saying here is there's total free will. The son basically says, Father, you're dead already. You're dead to me. Give me now what you would leave me in your will. The father liquidates that portion of the assets. He gives the son what he wants, a third of all his money. And the father lets him go. He doesn't follow him, maybe except in thought and prayer and love. He doesn't force him to stay. He knows his son's heart is already in the far country. So he gives him what he asks for. He doesn't send his, ser- his, his servants to look for him. He stands on that front porch watching his son's figure shrink into the horizon into willful, intentional rebellion. And in between the lines, you know that this dad stays on the front porch with sorrowful eyes watching that son fade into the horizon. Luke 15, 13 through 16. Not long after that, the younger son got all together he had. He set off for a distant country, squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went. He hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now this son probably has an emotional rush, a rush that comes with a a newfound freedom, enjoying the claims of that rebellion. And he takes a third of his dad hard-earned living and dismisses it out of hand. And we can speculate what the details are of what he spent the money on. But Jesus wants us to know more than the trashy details. 
The point Jesus wants to give to the religious people isn't what he did, my friends. Our society, doesn't it love to hear about everyone's foul mistakes? No, Jesus wants us to know that this was done by intentional choice. It's not important to bring about those details. And we find that the money runs out. Unfortunately, a famine comes. This son begins to starve. He becomes a hired hand, getting the job of shoveling pig dung to the crowd listening. These Jews listening, Gentiles listening, to feed the pigs and get hungry enough and to join the pigs eating the slop and scraps of a Gentile is an ultimate rock bottom. Now the son's first thought as he stares down into those pots, he sees home, the warmth and love of home. You know what it would be to me. He's hungry. And his memory is so vivid, he recounts, he recounts and he says to himself, the servants had food, food enough to spare. Luke 15, he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. You see the picture? In his mind's eye, he sees that happiness and that love, but they're only memories In that moment of physical hunger, he sees a picture of what sin has silenced. The son, he sees the extravagance of his father's love. And he finally sees that he had made the wrong decision and where his choices have led him. Notice his thoughtful choice to make things right, and he rehearses a confession to himself. I will set out and go back to my father And say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. This wayward son, he cuts through the pig slop and he sees his mistake. He doesn't think he's worthy of anything. He's ready now to retrace his steps and become a barefooted servant. And notice the priority of his confession. I've sinned against heaven and against you, Dad. And he knows he went the opposite way of God's way. And for the first time, he realizes that deep love that he has for his father. Now verse 20 in Luke chapter 15 is probably one of the most incredible underrated verses in the Bible. It's not quoted very much, but it's intense and powerful. Let's look at it. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Jesus gives us a vivid picture that the father's vision with telescopic sight, with love locked in on scanning that horizon. No wonder he probably kept round-the-clock, round-the-clock watch on his front porch, and then he sees him. He sees his son's figure. His clothes are tattered. The innocence is gone in his step. But there's an emotional rush in the father. He forgets the dignity of all his years. And he runs. He runs to his son. And when he finally gets to this prodigal son, does he yell at him? Does he tell him how much heartache he has caused? 
Does he ask him about the inheritance? Does he strike him? No, no, no. He doesn't even take time to listen to his son's rehearsed confession. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. A kiss fervent with warm, embracing love. Folks, this points so much light and insight into a clear view of how much God desires to love us even before our repentance and our deepest sins are confessed. And then this confession comes. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the Father's forgiveness is expressed in a call to action. He calls for symbols of worth to be placed again on his son. His son is still priceless in his eyes and has not lost value because of his actions. And the father says to his servants, but the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And there's a total detection of the father's rapid beating heart here, my friends. He says the word quick. Return my son to his position of sonship. And these symbols are placed on the son, prove full forgiveness and restoration of the son to his prior status. The robe is a sign of great distinction. The ring is a sign of authority and family. The sandals, a luxury. Only slaves were barefooted. And the slaughter of the fatted calf means that there's going to be a party like no other. You see, he's fully restored to the position that he made abandoned before long. And the father shouts this to everyone. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This proclamation is so different from the lost sheep and lost coin. The sheep, yeah, it got lost. The coin is an inanimate object. It's not living. The son chose to walk away from life. He was selfish. He was shameful. He turned inward to satisfy his own desires. But there was no judgment on the lips of the dad. There's only restoration, not condemnation. So there's this older brother that comes on the scene. Someone looking in judgment. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property on prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? With all of this, Jesus shows us the love of the Heavenly Father. Now he knows that he has to rebuke and silence the murmurs of these religious leaders. The loving and compassionate Father pleads with that elder son to come in. The Father went out to beg him to just come in and celebrate. 
The elder son didn't even call him father. Did you catch that? He just says, look. That, that's so disrespectful and rude to the father. He called his, his brother, you just son of yours. He didn't even say, my brother. This older brother felt self-righteous and obedient unto the law and felt like he deserved a reward and his younger brother deserved punishment, not celebration. And the word prostitute, did you notice? That was never used until the older brother used it. The older brother, he had everything except he had poverty in the spirit. He worked like a slave. He was with his father physically day in and day out, but he never understood the heart of his father. He felt obligated to work for his father like that servant, but never enjoyed true sonship. He had everything, but he felt like he had nothing. This older son was religious and hardworking and a rule keeper, but he was self-righteous, judgmental, and most of all, he never understood the compassion of God. This older brother represents, I believe, those who feel like they're above or earn their way by duty. This older brother was consistent, constant, and moral, yes. We should give him credit, but his obedience, my friends, was not a joyful obedience. And what is lacking in the older brother is the love and grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And he wasn't a son. He was a servant. Instead of living love, he had this temporal religiosity that we see in legalistic Christians that are judgmental. And Jesus is showing those religious leaders and the church that you're, you're just seeing the sin and making judgment. Judgment is God's and God's only. God wants us to see with incredible love the precious life and the very soul of the person and their hurt and pain. God also wants us to have a fantastic relationship with those who are on the outside of faith and try to woo them back with our love and our embrace, not dutiful service. He also desires that we be the people with this love message that is written in the clouds. It's the love that has built the kingdom of God. What does this chapter reveal, my friends? It reveals redemption. What does redemption look like for you today? There's nothing more important that you could be thinking right now. Maybe you've been running. Maybe you need to stop, come to your senses, turn around, and go home. Maybe you're so lost in your rebellion against God that you don't feel like there's any hope. Maybe you once felt close to God, but you've distanced yourself and didn't even realize it until right now. You see, God's calling you back. God is searching. Have you wandered away? God is waiting for you to come home, to repent and be redeemed today, and to run into those arms that will never let you go. I love the old hymn. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. On the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home.
Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your redemption of our lives. We pray that we would come to you in our sin and rebellion where you are seeking and saving that which is lost and you desire to turn our lives around and experience your redemption, your redemption, oh God. And God, we thank you for this incredible, these incredible parables that give us so such insight on your love and your call for us to come into your arms, to run into your arms and never let you go, God. May we be the people who joyfully are obedient and live in your grace and show others the compassion and love of this great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.